Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Brown, and welcome to the Millie Podcast. The more I talk with people, the more I'm hearing the same thing. We're all looking for more meaning and more substance. People want to get away from the scripted reality and get to the heart of each person's story. This podcast is for women who want to rip up the script and explore new ideas, places, and possibilities. Every two weeks, I'll be talking with an inspiring and inspired woman who is creating impact in her community. And more importantly, a woman who can teach us to be ourselves, go after our dreams, and write our own story. I can't wait to share this journey with you. It's time to see the world in a different way. Welcome to season two of the Millie podcast. I can't wait for you to meet the inspirational and fascinating women of 2022. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome award-winning children's book author and illustrator Nadine Kadan. Born in Syria and based out of London, her books have been published in several languages, reaching a worldwide audience of children. I caught up with Nadine in London last fall, and I know you're going to find her as refreshing and inspiring as I do. So I've, I've always been fascinated by the old city of Damascus. Since I was a child, I've always loved playing in the fountains and smelling the jasmine and look at the arches and this magnificent architecture that the city has and so unique to Damascus. Nadine champions empowered and inclusive representation in kids' books so that every child can see themselves in a story. Every time I visit refugee camps, I am empowered by these children. I learn from these children. I don't come to help them. They help me mostly. They teach us about resilience, about life, about keeping a smile, about how you make the best out of a very difficult situation. Yeah, it's impossible to live in Damascus and not to become a storyteller because there's so much to say. There's so much stories to be inspired by. Her work, as she describes it, was very dreamy and inspired by the ancient architecture of Damascus and its rich storytelling culture. We have in Syria a history of amazing warrior women and queens and, and feminism. Us in the Arab world, we're not only passionate about it, but we fight for it and we lived for it as well. But when the conflict in Syria erupted, it was reflected in her illustrations and even the color palette she used. She wrote her book, Tomorrow, which captured the attention of news outlets like CNN and the BBC to help Syrian children process the reality of civil war and work through post-conflict trauma. Her book, Jasmine Sneeze, shows children the beauty of Syria before the conflict. What does it do to us on an identity level? We're much older than a war, and the heritage and the culture and the art there is much older than a war, and it will stop and it will come back. But we just have to not let us define us and remember that we're more than that. She has been nominated for a Kate Greenaway medal, featured in Marie Claire, and is the 2019 winner of the Arab British Centre Award for Culture. Nadine was also selected as one of the BBC's 100 Most Influential Inspiring Women of 2020 and was featured in their BBC 100 Women Masterclass. I'm so excited to welcome Nadine. I've been to Jordan many times. Have you? Yes. Okay. So your story really resonates with oh. a lot of the projects that we're working on. Okay. And I've been to Zachary Camp. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So your story, you know, as a Syrian woman mm -hmm. who is influencing children to identify is amazing. And I think it's just incredible what you're doing. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you so much. What is it like being one of the 100 women, most influential yeah. women, according to the BBC? Um, crazy. <laughs> What's it like? Uh, 
when I when I received the email, I wasn't sure whether I'm really chosen or is it like final nomination. I was just like keep questioning that because I couldn't just believe it. And when I looked at the list, I was even more shocked because you have Sana Marin, the the and um, the Prime Minister of Sweden, and Sarah Gilbert, the mm-hmm. creator of the COVID vaccine, and all of these amazing women and I was so honored and, and, and shocked. And when I talked to the BBC women team, I told them, I mean, how not only an incredible honor for me to be there on the list, but it also gives importance to stories and diversity in stories and the importance of children's books. Because a lot of these days, children's books are not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And people do forget that stories makes us who we are and we grow up with these children's books that we read and and I truly believe that end of racism starts on the bookshelves so if we don't put importance of children's books on the front people will not take them seriously and then a lot of children will feel left out uh, left behind and when they chose me I just told them really thank you because it gives seriousness to this topic and I was just like yeah I was really honored you're like, is this a prank? <laughs> yeah, I, when I read the email, I was like, no, 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 no. That, and I told them, will I be chosen later? Is this like a nomination? I was like, no, 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 you're chosen. That's it. So it was, yeah, it was amazing. Nadine, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And an uh, author. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I did my first story when I was 10 at school and I photocopied it in a, in a machine. What? black and white and <laughs> I made it into a, like a proper story and I distributed it in the school and I didn't even like forget to, to write all the details publication written by illustrated by and all as if like it's a real book and I just knew that that's what I wanted to do since the age of 10 and mm-hmm. when you grow up you 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 find different ways different people telling you to do different things but I was just like really focused on art I loved illustrating books and I loved drawing all the time so I did fine arts with with knowing in my mind that I will be doing children's books mm-hmm. so yeah it was a crazy journey because in the beginning I didn't know where to start because we didn't have any like very few children books publications and publishing houses in Syria maybe we have only two so it was really tough to know where to start and how to publish a book but then yeah, it worked. My first published book was with a Jordanian publisher. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, yeah so wow. you were in Jordan and and I love Jordan because it was the first time I was ever published and it was a crazy story because <laughs> I didn't know what to start. I just had just graduated and I had this great job as an art director at an advertising company, but I knew that this is not what I wanted and I sat on Google and I just put Arabic children's books. <laughs> and the first thing that comes up is a, pub- a publishing house called the Selwa Publishing House. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll contact them. I said, hello, would you want to see my portfolio? And they just emailed me back, said, yeah, send, send us your work. <laughs> and yeah, this is how, how it started. That's incredible. You mm-hmm. had almost a different career path. Yeah. That's yeah. really inspiring. When I first when I first graduated, I was an art director. I had just came back from London. I had did like a a, a portfolio course, so I I had this job at the, at a big advertising company. And uh, had I not get my first published book, I would stay there. But I knew that this is not what I wanted. So when I signed the contract with them, 
I decided to quit and to just focus on children's books. And yeah, it's been what seven, fifteen years. Wow. <laughs> Never stopped since then. Yeah, that's incredible because you know a lot, lot of the time, women and people will have this, you know, voice in the back of their head saying you want to actually do this, you don't want to, you know, you have this passion project or mm -hmm. this other calling and sometimes, um, you know, lack of confidence or being afraid to switch careers can get in our way. So what was that like for you going through that journey? Did you have self-doubt? A lot. It was very hard because I was just thinking, what, should I just leave a a very good job with a good salary and sit at home and okay I signed the contracts but will I ever get another book or will yeah. I ever get another book but I remember like I, I had a chat with with close friends and 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 she was telling me do you think you will be able to pursue your career doing this full-time job and I was like no it's impossible it's nine right. to six and it's just like do it because life is short and I've, I've, I've remembered the obsession of will I be published again after my first book? And I was, and we still have it. We still have it. I even talk to really well-known authors here in the UK and we always have this anxiety when your book is published. Is it going to do good? Is it going to sell? Are people going to like it? Are children going to enjoy it? And am I going to be published again? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a stressful journey. What was your first book? The first book I've written and illustrated is called Answer Me, Layla. Okay. So uh, it's a story dedicated for children with special needs. Um, it's, it's about a deaf princess. So that was my first book. And uh, I, the first one I, I wrote before that I had illustrated for other people and won an Ellen's Award for children with special needs, which was amazing because it was my first book. But then here, when I came to the UK, I didn't think I would be published in English. It's not my first language. It's not my right. second language. It's my third language. So I never studied in English. Yeah, I'm impressed. You also speak French. I was, wow, this woman is just <laughs> incredible. It's, it's, it's not. It's, at school, we learned Arabic and the second language was French. So that was my education. I was never educated in English. And then I came here to the UK finding myself reading about Hobbes and Adorno and all of these political theory that are really difficult. So I really struggled. So when I came here, I didn't even dream that I will be published here. I, I would attend lots of lectures and, and conferences about children's books industry in the UK. And I'd hear people saying who've been trying to get published for 10 years with no hope and all of that native English speakers, all of that people who knows the industry, who has contacts where I just came from Syria with a suitcase really and a and, and few paints and brushes and watercolors. But luckily, I was um, I was speaking once at the London Book Fair about my book, my, my Arabic book. It was a um, it was a panel discussion about translation, translating, and they were trying to get our books from different languages translated. And uh, my publisher Alice from Lantana Publishing, she approached me and she said, "Why won't you submit to us?" And I was like, "Me." Oh my God. Okay. I just said, yeah, yeah, of course. And I came back home doubting that, can I write a story in English, which is not my first language? I could write in Arabic. Can I write in English? What will happen when you switch the language? And I took the shot. I just kept trying and trying. And and I remember maybe I, what I did with the Jasmine Sneeze, I wrote paragraphs in Arabic and then I translated them into English and then it didn't sound good. And then I wrote it, rewrote it again in English and I submitted it knowing it's, it's impossible. She's not going to take it. And she did. Mm. That was my first book published in the UK. 
Wow. The jasmine sneeze. Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard about this story. Anyone listening, you'll have to go learn all about it. It's so cute with the cat and the jasmine. As someone who loves Jordan, I can smell jasmine in the summer. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was such a cute topic for a book. So you know why children's books? Let's get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And do you think that you still have to keep the essence, the childlike essence, to be able to, you know, illustrate an author these books? It's 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 very a good question that brings us back to the first topic that we talk about the importance of children's books and what does it do and and the importance of everyone bring them to the front and treat them seriously. Um, we all know what stories do to us. I mean, stories shapes our identities, makes us who we are. Books uh, takes us to all the places that we want. And and interesting enough, I read the other day even uh, children who reads for pleasure. They have better mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotionally, they are more um, uh, their emotional uh, well-being is is much more developed because you relate to these characters. You find a way to come out of the difficulty through these characters. They're even better at math. Wow. So that's according to the book trust. So the Book Trust has published this article, Why Reading for Pleasure is Important. And I had no idea that even children who read for pleasure just pick a book to read and they enjoy it. We're not talking to learn about topic. We're just like reading for pleasure. They do better at math. They have better mental health, better well-being. So that's the importance of books in general. We know what do they do to us as adults. Imagine what do they do to children. But also, I think... Stories is the best way to introduce topics that are sensitive, that are difficult. That in reality, in real life, when you want to talk about it, how can a child relate to that? How can yeah. a child relate to that? But when they see a character going through this difficult situation and this hardship and how they come out of it, and you see yourself through these characters, you relate, you learn about the world, you learn about hardship. So I find any difficult topic that is so sensitive and hard to introduce to children, just find a book about it and, and mm-hmm. do it. And finally, my, my favorite part about why books are important, they're not only providing a mirror, so seeing yourself and relating to these characters and learning how to come out of difficult situations, but they also provide a window to the world. And this is when empathy, true empathy starts. When you have in your bookshelves characters from all over the world, when you have characters of color, when you have Asian characters, when you have characters celebrating all kind of holidays, you relate to these characters, you love them, you find yourself in them. And then the next thing happens is true empathy is building. Mm. And then the world is a better world this way. This is how we really learn about diversity. This is how we really truly understand the world around us. And And I found the equation is really simple. We are scared of the things that we don't know. Yeah. I think it's really easy. Exactly. And the more we read stories, fun stories, just fun stories about characters, about cultures around us, the more that we're not scared next time we see someone from a different culture or a different background or a different ethnicity. In fact, it will excite us because, oh, I read the story and I love this character. And my son, one of his favorite book is about uh, a Nigerian girl. Uh, celebrating the Yam Festival. And when we were in, in the park and, and, and he was playing with this girl and we asked her where, where she's from and, and she said she's originally from Nigeria. He was like, oh, just like the story. And he was so happy. Wow. And I was like, that's what books Amazing. do. 
Yeah, it's really, really special. Nadine, I'd love to talk about your childhood. Okay. In Syria. Mm -hmm. So something, when I was preparing for this discussion with you today, something that really kept reoccurring to me was someone who had grown up in Syria, this beautiful place, that's your home, and then the conflict turned war happened. What was that like growing up in this world that you thought was your own and then, you know, everything changed? I think I read that you left to come to London thinking you'd go back yeah. after one year and you're still here now. Yeah, 10 years later. 10 years later. And yeah. you were, what, in your, your 20s when yeah. this happened. Yeah. So old enough to understand what's going on mm-hmm. um, and witness the pain. Yeah, yeah. I think the hardest part of, of leaving, I mean, many people just travel around the world and live in other countries and that's fine. But our, when we left Syria, the hardest part is that everyone else left and there's no home anymore. Your friends are scattered everywhere. Everyone is scattered. Even if you get the chance to go back now, because it is possible to go back, it doesn't feel like home because everyone left. Everyone's all over the place. So the idea of losing home is really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, I still believe that we, we we still go back and we didn't, we're trying to keep the identity alive and we're trying to visit as much as possible. But the war is, is we know what, what does it do to a place and to people and to your identity? And it's, 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 I, I really think no one should ever experience war because it's so, so difficult on all levels. I mean, when we grew up in Syria, it was very safe space. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because Syria, is, I, I found it even safer than London because if you forget sometimes your wallet on the street, people will come and remind you to take it. So I remember yeah. the safety, the sense of safety and, when that changed suddenly because of the war, it was such a shock for us. Uh, we didn't even want to call it a war because we yeah. we just were not convinced. I My book tomorrow, there isn't a word in it called saying that it's a war. I said it's a conflict, it's a crisis because we were just all convinced it's going to finish, few months going to finish. This is not happening to us. We were in denial. but yeah. And even when we came here, I was like, yeah, 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 we'll come back. It's going to finish. We just refuse to to believe that this is going to linger that much and it's going to cause that much destruction. And what does it do to us on an identity level coming from now? Like everything linked to Syria is war, where for us, like Syria is, is fountains yeah. and jasmine and, and so much beauty, culture and heritage and beauty. So suddenly the identity shift was scary for us. And that's why I did the jasmine sneeze, because I wanted to remind myself and children that that this is temporary and this is Syria has the oldest cities in the world, Aleppo and Damascus, and we're much older than a war and the heritage and the culture and the art there is much older than a war and it will stop and it will come back. Mm-hmm. But we just have to not let us define us, not let us make us who we are the war and remember that we're more than that. Yeah. For everyone listening who might not fully understand, you know, the conflict and the wars, can you paint the picture for everyone 
for what it was like growing up in Syria. Yeah, I mean, growing up in Syria was uh, was really a normal childhood. I I don't find it different than just a normal childhood here. So, so for example, now I have a toddler who's three years old, but I take him to swimming classes, and I remember doing that as a child. So we had our swimming classes, our tennis classes, and after school classes, and the art classes, and um, playing in the parks, and and on the weekend just meeting families and and climbing trees. So it's just really really normal childhood the touch of of living in in, in an old city like damascus so for us like um it's interesting because here everyone all the kids sleeps at seven where where in syria it's okay if you stay up late at night because this is when the summer nights are it's it's so nice and breathy after the hot sun comes comes down and then you smell the jasmine and then you play in this courtyard and you go see these fountains so i've i've always been fascinated by the old city of damascus since i was a child i've always loved playing in the fountains and smelling the jasmine and look at the arches and this magnificent architecture that the city has and so unique to Damascus. It's something they've always been fascinated by and and always ask questions about what is this? What was that? What is this building? And and you find these beautiful houses that are like 5,000 wow. years old, really ancient, ancient houses. Each house has a story and each each fountains has a story and each place inspires you in a different way and I think yeah it's impossible to live in Damascus and not to become a storyteller because there's so much to say there's so much stories to be inspired by wow can you share with us about the misconceptions about Syria and you know what do you want people to know about Syria yeah oh thank you I found this very important topic and it's a very very interesting question as someone who always been been passionate and frustrated and angry about women's rights and the women's situation in general and fighting for better situation for us um what frustrates me the most is the stereotypes that comes when you come from a certain country. And there is this new term, I've learned it recently at Goldsmiths, which is called white feminism, which means it's, it's, it's the, the, the feminism or women's rights are only focused or made by the West and white women and then always looked at, at women from ethnic minorities or diverse backgrounds looked at in a charitable look in a pity mm. look that these women didn't reach what we reached and that's infuriating and tiring because every time I say from from Syria they immediately assume a certain stereotypes about you they immediately assume that you're the traditional person that who stays at home and cook and your husband is the provider and you know this 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 main family which for me, it's it's empowering by itself if that's the woman's choice, of course. I mean, um, every woman's choice is, is if she chose her life, then that's empowering by itself. But just like assuming things about you, it's, it's just tiring. And assuming that only feminism is a white concept and women's right and gender equality is a Western concept, as if us in the Arab world, we're not only passionate about it, but we fight for it and we lived for it as well. It's it's tiring. Um, we have in Syria history of amazing warrior women and queens and and feminism. So don't take it away from us and don't make it a, a, such a Western or white focused concept. I my mom always worked and and she's um, she's a professor at a university. She's a French professor. My grandma was a journalist. So. 
a lot of women around me are independent. So it's it surprised me where the stereotypes comes from. Of course, I mean, we have a lot of problems in Syria we need to solve about women's situation. But making the stereotypes, it's very harming. And we really need to um, expand what feminism is when we think of this topic. Absolutely. Everyone, like, turn that up, you know? Yeah. That needs to be heard on loud. Yeah. Where do you think the misconceptions come from? A lot of the media, I think a lot of the media is focused on that, even literature. So uh, when I was I was once at a conference, at a panel discussion, probably at the London Book Fair, and they were talking about translating uh, literature from different languages. And one of the translators, she's a translator from Arabic to English. And I, one of the questions that came to me is like, why the literature that is translated from the Arab word, from Arabic to English, is mostly about this oppressed woman mm. who's always pro- probably being abused by her husband and and, and and always these stories about these um, non-empowered women. It's true. It is a reality in the Arab world. It is so sad and it is beyond. The number is massive, which is really sad. But when you only, and that's what Chimamanda Natsusi keeps saying, that if you only portray one image, it will become reality. People think that that's the only situation. And that's the case. Books, even children's books, I, they're only focused on traditional type women from the Arab world, uh, films, uh, culture in general. But in fact, that's not the case. And, and we are diverse. We, we have all kind of different kind of women. And I would love to see more stories about empowered women in the Arab world published, uh, more films and more, uh, more literature, more, more, more showing to everyone. That's, it's, it's, we're much more diverse than what you're showing now at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I ask her why, I remember I asked this, this translator, why do you think... That's the case. She totally agreed with me. And she said it's, it's, it's probably because it's easier for us to say, look how better we came around. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we've came around this and we, we improved, but we, we have a lot of our problem to fix. But when you look at how the situation, you think, oh, but lucky me, I'm in a better situation. But yeah, um, I, I hope there will be more, more, more diversity and more equality when, when, when it comes to a uh, woman's situation in the Arab world. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Amal. Yeah. I'm so excited. Congratulations. Thank you. So to tell you more about Amal, Amal, it's it's, it's a really brilliant, fantastic project done by the uh, Good Chance Theatre. So they they created this fictional character of a little girl called Amal. She's a nine-years-old girl. And she is walking all the way from Syria to the UK on a refugee journey to find her mother. Like so many, so many children, refugees, so many children unaccompanied walking to find a better place or to find their parents because they get separated at some point. And they, when they created this character, they made this huge four meter puppet. And this puppet, I think she needs four or five puppetries to, 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 to walk her actually physically walking from Turkey all the way to it's UK, incredible. visiting 50 cities around incredible. the world. So it's a brilliant project. And the main idea of this project, they would ask, so you have this amazing character, you have this amazing puppet, Amal. 
How would you welcome a child refugee when it comes to your city? How do you welcome a child unaccompanied, no parents, no family to your city? And it's so beautiful to see the celebration that's been happening throughout all her walk. So she's been in Turkey, in Italy. She was even, she met the Pope when she when she was in, in, in Italy. Uh, yeah, she visited so many beautiful European cities and in every city there is a big celebration there is a big party there is a big public event and she's about to arrive to the UK next week yes that's what I saw I'm sad I'm only learning about her you know in the journey so she's coming to the UK and my part of of the whole uh, project is welcoming her in Oxford Mm -hmm. so uh, how would we welcome a man in Oxford so it was a very interesting way to 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 think about it and how do we throw a big party celebration to tell her welcome and also show how empowered she is how resilient she is walking all the way to find her mother and the listeners might know that Oxford is the city of Alice in Wonderland so Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass in Oxford and we didn't think of a better way to welcome Amal is by another puppet who's also four meter, who's Alice, Alice in the Wonderland. And, and that's why we created the, the event. So they meet together. And my part is writing the story, creating the event of a big procession, 100 performances of storytelling, music and dances. And they're going to walk together, the two puppets all around Oxford. Uh, she's going to show her around. Amal has a big bag of memories that was spilled all over the city. And uh, Alice will help her find her memories, put them back in the bag, because that's what makes her stronger, the memories of back home and her identity. So they walk around, find the memories, and the memories are are represented in, in, in amazing performances, memories from back home. Uh, memories of like a lullaby of song, then you find an amazing performance of, of people singing a lullaby and then you walk a little bit more and then you find uh, uh, people, uh, kids playing football and she was a f- uh, the best football player back home and then she would, the two puppets would play football until the end of procession that will end at uh, Christchurch um, Christ Meadow. Um, and uh, yeah, and the whole city will be there dancing and welcoming I wish I would be here. Oh, <laughs> I would love to go. But I'm, um, I've already shared it with some friends. Amazing. And I think yeah. it's incredibly inspiring. What do you think Amal and your stories do for other displaced children? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, the idea of Amal by itself is, is to celebrate this character as an empowered character, to inspire others, to show the resilience. What frustrates me the most is a lot of the stories about refugees in general, the, the refugee character is not empowered, is waiting for others to help, has no agency, uh, pretty much has the um, white savior narrative, which is really sad because I've been... For the past 10 years, I've been traveling around the world, visiting refugee camps in Jordan or even in Europe or in Lebanon. And every time I visit refugee camps, I am empowered by these children. I learn from these children. I don't come to help them. They help me mostly. They help me about, they teach us about resilience, about life, about keeping a smile, about how you 
make the best out of a very difficult situation. And that's what I love about Amal. It's a story of empowerment. We're showing that this character, not as a weak character waiting for others to help her, but she's empowered. They're cel- we're celebrating her culture. She's even helping Alice in certain situations. Alice didn't know how to play football. Amal helps her. So so it's an equal relationship. It's, it's, um, it's a story of friendship. And what does it do to displace children? It will tell them that... This is who you are. You come from beautiful places. You have your strong identity, your culture, and your heritage. And once you come to a society, you're going to enrich that society with the diversity of the society, with your culture, with the food, with the language, with everything you bring. So actually, any society is is lucky to have people coming and and bring their culture to to that community and and make the community much richer and much more colorful than it is and that's what i want to tell children refugees yes you come from a destroyed place yes you had a very very difficult situation but you inspire everyone with your resilience and you have so much to give absolutely that's so beautiful as a woman navigating this space what advice would you have for women who might want to take a leap of faith and change careers or, you know, reach for the stars, the stars that they think are, that are unreachable for anyone having self-doubt? I think it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting question. And, and now that I'm pregnant and I have my yes. son, it, it teaches me what feminism is or what gender equality is. It's really about what the woman wants. Mm-hmm. And it's really about being passionate about you want and following what you want and not letting society pressure in you one way or the other. Don't let the society pressure you. I was pressured myself. I remember when I gave birth, I just immediately got a big book contract and I immediately came back to work and I felt it was wrong. I needed longer maternity leave. I needed to stay at home with my, with my child. So just knowing what you're passionate about and not letting stereotypes makes you feel that this is not what a successful woman should look like you decide you define what successful woman and and the successful woman is not necessarily only a ceo it's it's I love that. you being passionate about what you do and being true to yourself and 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 shout out for other women that's for me yeah. the most important bit is, is is shout out to other women and and uh, yeah, that, that's that's my the only advice I would say. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. that. I especially love what you said about don't feel pressure one way or the other because sometimes it's like, oh, <clears throat> I kind of want to be at home with my kids, but you feel like pressure maybe that people will judge you, right? Exactly. And I was scared that I wouldn't get the contract, but yeah. then I realized if I truly believe in gender equality and feminism, then we shouldn't be scared because we gave birth not getting contract. We actually should fight. This is when you should fight and you should say. I'm on maternity leave and you have to wait for me for as long as I need it to. And that's your right as a woman. It's not going back to work early. And and it makes me really sad because a lot of books on gender equality and, and empowering females say, and all oh, this woman, how amazing that she came back after two weeks of giving birth or, or is that what she wanted? If that was she wanted, then it's fine. But is that what she wanted? Women should feel the freedom of staying at home and, 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 not feeling pressure that they would lose their job if they don't come back early. Industry should change, not women should change. The industry should say, we're going to give you the safe space for you to be ready to come back and not the other way around. And when I gave birth, I was too scared. I was like, what if they give it to someone else? And when are you due? This is your second. Um, I'm due in February. 
Congratulations. And really my plan is not to come back until I'm like 100% ready and hoping for industries. And the more we shout out about this topic, the more industry will change. And I've hearing I've been hearing so many amazing stories of women fighting for their rights and and starting by the the employer not giving them flexible hours and then getting low cases and and suing those companies. We need to shout out for each other. Women needs to feel that they are have flexibility within their work so they can come back and also not feel pleasure. You come back at your own time. If you don't if you want to come back early, that's fine. If you don't come, if you want to come back late, that's fine too. It's your pressure, it's your it's your decision because uh, it's funny because some women said they felt pressure not to come back and some women felt they felt pressure to come back. So there's always this what the society expects us to do. But it should be really what uh, makes you happy and that's what makes you the most empowered and successful in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. I really admire that. Thank you very much. I want to ask you a couple questions about how people can support this narrative. So by shouting out to women, by, you know, being an advocate for women, but how can people directly get involved with the work you're doing with Amal and with any of the projects that you're doing within the displaced community to empower this narrative? Well, as a, as a start, I mean, to involve with Amal, if you're checking her journey, do come to any of her events because it's really going to be a fun public event. Starting, I mean, everyone should be an advocate telling the community that whenever you have displaced or refugees, they should be treated with dignity, with empowerment and with, with celebration. We, we should look at how the, the influence that they're going to leave in this community rather than charitable pity look which that's what's happening at the moment there are so many amazing ngos they can be involved with and they can also let's just be friends with with i mean try to go to the local center local community center and see if if you can meet refugees and just be friends because just that's what creates a healthy community for me it's just friendship and and learning from them and 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 taking from them as much as giving them as much as helping because the main narrative is try to help try to donate which is so important but also see what they can give you because they can give you a lot and the relationship can be more empowered and balanced in that way yeah check out books children's books from diverse backgrounds don't just pick the one on the bookshelf because the one the, the children's books on the bookshelves are uh, uh usually unfortunately just um the most the commercial ones so the, not the sensitive topics not the the difficult topic and if you have children do read to them about about war for example my book tomorrow about the war in Syria and and parents might ask themselves why would i want to expose my children to such a sad difficult topic why would i want to do that because AE children are not excluded from what's going on they have heard of Syria they have heard of refugees i guarantee you yeah. and reading a story about that will create the empathy will help them relate but also them themselves your children might go through difficult situation and when they read the story they're going to come out of it learning how yeah. to deal with the tough situation so yeah uh, uh, make sure your, your bookshelf is diverse and and read stories about all the topics around the world mm-hmm. like the student who wasn't allowed to go outside because it was raining i think you yeah, mentioned that yeah, in yeah, your interview yeah. you know because yeah, it was, it was crazy because that was the first time I read Tomorrow and uh, uh, in the UK. And I myself was doubting 
was doubting. Yeah. I was like, it's a story about war and I made it in Syria. I only learned through experience the importance of, of it and, and reading it to children. Uh, uh, so the story is, is about, um, the book is about this boy who can't go outside and play because there is war yeah. and it's not safe. But when I read it um, the first time in a, in a school in the UK, the girl came to me and she said, well, your story happened to you. And I said, really? How? Well, she said it was raining outside and we couldn't go and play and we stuck at home. And I felt so sad, just like the boy in the story. And that's what it told me. Children find ways to relate to your stories. This is how they learn about difficult circumstances. Even like recently, I've received enormous amount of emails from parents telling me that the book helped them with the lockdown. Yes. Who would knew that 10 years after writing and illustrating the book, a lockdown will come and children can't go to school, just like in the story. Exactly. The boy couldn't go to school. He couldn't see his friend. He was stuck at home because outside is not safe. And that's exactly what happened exactly. to the vast majority of children. Outside was not safe because of the virus. So we're all prone to these vulnerabilities. So at the end of the story, the mom tell them, we don't know when we're going to leave, but we can imagine a beautiful park and painted on the wall. And even um, a, a, a parent tweeted at a, a photo of their son drawing a park on the wall. Yeah. And, 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 and he said that because of the lockdown, they couldn't go to the park and that inspired them by the story. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're all prone to vulnerabilities and difficult situations. So don't be shy away from these stories. Even adults like to read the kids' books, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I truly believe picture books are as important for children as much as for, for adults. Yeah. So to wrap up, you have traveled extensively. Can you tell us and share some of your favorite spots for anyone who might be traveling to where you've been? You know, um, I think were you in Sweden? Oh, difficult question. Where's and even here spot? in London, yeah. you know, what are some of your favorite like types of food, favorite cities? Oh, my God. For, okay. for people who can't travel right now, right? Oh, my God. We have to live uh -huh. vicariously through yeah. you. It's a very difficult question because I love traveling. I um, Well, I loved, I loved, I loved Cape Town and South Africa. Wow. It's, it's one of the most beautiful places. And uh, oh, my God, the nature and everything everything about this country i'm just so in love i i yeah i remember when i saw the table mountain it was just such a such a moment i was like oh my wow. god this is so beautiful wow. and and you you learn from the history yeah yeah nelson mandela is one of my biggest heroes so you also learn from the history and you learn what has been done there but just the nature and the people are so lovely so i love i love south africa what else uh Favorite food? It's really classic, but I just love Italian food. Me too. So good. <laughs> In addition to Syrian, especially yeah. that now my mom in town and she's cooking us all this traditional Syrian food, which oh, I miss so, so much. Nice. But Italian are so amazing. So when we go to Italy, we just like eat all the time. That's so nice. I actually went to um, a Syrian restaurant in Jordan. One of my first restaurants was a Syrian restaurant. That was, it was amazing. Remember what was your favorite dish? I don't remember from that specific restaurant, but I love the fresh herbs. Like yeah. all, just yeah. for me, that's what stands out. The sumac. I don't know if that's yeah, specifically yeah. Yeah, Syrian, yeah. but I love sumac. I love this the lemon and the the fresh spices, um, herbs. For me, that's what I always say when someone says, "What kind? What do you love about the cuisine?" It's the exactly the same herbs. with me. 
That's what really? I love the most is, is the, yeah, the amount of different fresh herbs you put so in one amazing. dish and different spices you put in one dish and, and the flavor from such a simple yeah. dish. And it's, it's important also to note that we have a, an amazing rich vegan cuisine mm. that is so flavorful because of the just different fresh herbs that we put in, in, one, in one dish. So it's oh so goodness. true. <laughs> I mean, even the inventive ways to do different dishes like even hummus yeah you know, I've <laughs> noticed just so many different ways it can be done with the the chilies and the oils and um sumac it's it's incredible and yeah you know, yeah so I yeah whatever we're eating here at Sainsbury's I do apologize but that's not the real hummus we eat <laughs> I know, in Syria I know I've had the best hummus in Jordan I'm like this is so good yeah. um Nadine thank you so much it was so good to meet you in person and hear your story and have the opportunity to have this discussion. I'm Truly. so honored I was invited when you sent me the email and I and I read all about this wonderful woman that you interviewed and I was like, I'm so lucky to be invited and to be interviewed among these amazing women. So thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this conversation with Nadine. Her ability to connect with children and adults across cultures is so inspiring. Follow her on Instagram and visit her at her website at www.nadinekadan.com. Join us next time when we'll meet Carlyn Persil, a certified emotional intelligence and neuro life coach, CEO of KDPM Consulting Group, and founder of the Sister Talk Leadership Academy. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please hit subscribe, share with your friends, and visit us at millie.ca. 